Hey folks, welcome to the Unsung Podcast. I was going to make a joke about new metal there, but my mind went completely blank, sorry. <laughs> that's what new metal does to you. <laughs> just erased your brain. It's trauma. It's, should I start scatting? <laughs> you should start therapy, is what you should do, and it'll slowly tease out all the things that your body desperately tried to damp Thera- down. Therapy question mark? <laughs> Bastard, I was going to say mark. that. Yeah, start therapy my joke. live. <laughs> That'll make more sense later on in this special, in this special episode mm-hmm. of the Unsung Podcast. Mark, what's the Unsung Podcast? The Unsung Podcast is a podcast where we talk about classic albums that we think we don't. are great <laughs> and bands that we think shite. are shite. <laughs> so, Mark, four years in, that's a terrible summation. No, I was, I was only, I was only part of it, fuck's sake. Terrible, terrible pattern. Um, so, on some podcasts, we talk about <laughs> bands that we think deserve to have more appreciation for the general public, or we talk about records which need to have more appreciation from bands that are huge. And sometimes we just talk about complete pish because people give us money to do it. No, <laughs> he's talking the truth. <laughs> uh, we have company this week. Uh, our main man, Dave Weaver, is in the saddle. Hi there. And our other main man, Craig. Is in the saddle down under. What do they call a saddle in Australia? A saddle. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Horse seat, something like that. How are you, boys? Nice to hear your dulcet tones. I think you're getting more Scottish as uh, as these weeks have went on. You just bring it out in us. Yeah, pretty much. I, I also know. haven't been out of. I haven't been out of Scotland for two years, so I don't have any cultural input from elsewhere. I just did my first bit of travel in a couple of years, and um, but traveling with uh, the COVID restrictions is a pain in the arse. Um, yep. Everywhere you go. Do what England did. Just pretend it's over. It's over. <laughs> it's done. It's gone. Well, Craig, you're on with us this week, apart from the fact that you're a top guy with loads of chat, uh, because the subject of this week's show is something that we've been teasing for a while and it really came from a suggestion you made quite some time ago uh, it was on the subject of cover mounts cover mount cds cover mount tapes cover mount compilations and it wouldn't have been right for us to do this without getting you involved firstly because you're going to have plenty of input and secondly because mark's got none mm-hmm. so <laughs> to make a substitution i don't know mark i don't know what you were doing with your youth that you somehow missed out in the yeah phenomenon. how did you listen to music how did you find out about new bands? Yeah, so I did actually buy Krang and Metal Hammer and stuff. TikTok. I just. <laughs> <laughs> I wish I was that young. Don't fucking tease me. <laughs> no, like I did buy Krang and Metal Hammer, but I just read them and then go out and buy the records. Like I wouldn't. I, like the cover mount CD thing. Maybe it was a bit. I don't know. Did you, did you grow up rich, Mark? Were you, were you rich? <laughs> Absolutely not. I would. I'd buy them. I'd buy like copied versions in school. I, I can. I can vouch for the fact he's a mink. <laughs> but, I mean, but, no, for, for for me personally, like this was the only way I could hear like new bands because I couldn't go out and buy eighteen albums of like right, bands exactly. I read about. You know, I just picked like one or two. You know, what what confuses me is that the, the discs were stuck to the front of the magazines. It wasn't a matter of choice. Did you not wonder why the <laughs> magazines were so heavy that week? <laughs> The, the, the disc was stuck to it Obviously I'd see them They just weren't a part of my Musical upbringing Like I just never listened you're, to them You're a literature like, man aren't you <laughs> That is true That is true But no I never yeah, your, your cover mount novellas On literature today Yeah The, the totally. cover the cover mount CDs And the reader's digest Were shite um, Okay well the Free books were good though <laughs> So We're going to do two things uh, With this show 
Uh, the first part of the show is we're going to just talk about the phenomenon of cover mounts, mainly for Mark's sake. You're going to be a proxy for the ignorance of the world. Yep. And we're going to look into a wee bit of the history and just generally swap some thoughts on it because it's actually pretty interesting. I mean, all these things at first glance seem like they could be a bit dry until you really dig into them and you're like, shit, that's kind of fascinating how that works. We'll do that. And that's going to be episode one. And in episode two we decided to try something a bit different. And I think what we've realised is it's going to set the tone for something that'll become a semi-regular feature in the show. We're going to take a cover mount CD, in this case, and we're going to sort of review it. Uh, we're, we're going to go through it track by track, as we maybe with a normal album. Um, there's obviously far more bands involved, so we'll, we'll see what we find. We'll find the people that vanished, the people that went on to great success, some of the highlights, some of the lowlights. We're all going to pick... Uh, at the end of episode two, a good, the bad, and the ugly of that record, our favourite, our least favourite, and one that's some anomaly. It's kind of fascinating, maybe, or it's very unusual, or you know, there's something noticeable about it. Uh, so that'll be part two. Part one. Uh, this is the documentary episode. You've you know you've seen it before with the black metal mixtape or the right girl mixtape. We do a little bit of a, a history lesson, and we're we're going to make it interesting. Mark, is there any uh, office work you want to get out the road before yes, I get stuck in? I do have some office work. First of all, I want to say a big thank you to Todd Cool. Is that how we're saying his name? Anyway, he gave, he's part of the, uh, the the vinyl and digital record club. He's a so premium chap. A premium chap. Is, uh, is he called power? Todd Cool? Todd, Todd Cool? Yeah. Yeah, he is very cool. Yeah. Uh-huh. Uh, and Power. They, they subscribe to us. Thank you, Power. Yep. An excellent organisation, doing excellent work in Scotland for women's repre- representation in music. Yeah, and uh, Roshan Bahita, thank you for uh, joining us as well. So, yeah, that's that's some of the admin of the way. And um, we also recently put up a bonus episode, so if you want to subscribe even at the lowest tier, which is a, which is £4, pounds, uh, or whatever equivalent is in your local currency, um, you'll get access to what is now 18 bonus episodes. Yeah. Which is pretty cool. The last one's really good. It's a town hall sort of, it's a mixtape Christmas leftovers. The questions we didn't get round to in the Christmas specials because we were gubbed. And uh, yeah, some fine patter within. And we've also started sending out the Unsung Record Club records. All uh, over the world. All over the planet, actually, yeah. Uh have a look on the website, get involved in that. It's really good. We have a box of some tremendous stuff here already. A bunch of people are going to be going down to answer the door to the mailman and they're going to get this lovely surprise. You could be one of those people um, and we promise it'll be worth your while and it'll help us out at the same time because we want to keep doing this. Uh, so, let's just dive in. What are cover mounts? Okay, cover mounts come in different forms. Um, we're mainly talking about something called flexi-discs, which we'll go into, cassettes, and CDs. Now, what you'll probably realise is, given that it stops at CDs, I don't think it even got as far as mini-discs. Anybody ever see a mini-disc cover mount? No, I don't think so. Never. No. So, given that it stops at CDs, cover mounts are very much a thing of the past, or that's not strictly true. I thought they were, and it turns out there is a sort of ironic retro value appreciation of cover mounts now uh, in the same way as there might be for Chuck Norris movies or Um, (laughs) Tom Selleck's moustache there you go Uh, we'll get to that as well why are we discussing them? because especially for (laughs) I would say white males our age people our age but uh, in this case white males our age uh, they were really influential mostly apart from Mark (laughs) Um, and actually quite exciting I think for a lot of us, as Craig says, there was an economic mm-hmm. aspect to that, and that they were the they were the only <laughs> way that some people got to 
hear a, certainly a, a bunch of new things at one time other than terrestrial radio, which in the UK wasn't that great. And they were the precursor to playlists. Uh, playlists have basically inherited the title. That is where publications and people and bands curate new artists. Uh, and there's a whole load of politics and a whole load of interesting dynamics behind those as well that, that really parallel a lot of things that were going on with governments. And we'll look at those too. Dave, <coughs> government's a big part of your childhood. Oh, absolutely. Like, I guess it was just that sort of pre-internet era of getting something that wasn't the radio that was curated to an extent and depending on what magazine you were buying uh, or you know what sort of journal you're after you knew a general sort of genre that you'd be getting mm-hmm. but there would it would be a bit of a mix of what you'd be getting yeah for me i think my first ever kerrang magazine had a cover mount cd on it and it just opened my eyes to a whole load of stuff when was that i was probably 13 and then just over the next seven or eight years, whether it was Kerrang! or Metal Hammer, Terrorizer, and then even like later on I was getting like Mix Mag and yeah, it was just a really interesting, good introduction to a whole load of shit that I wouldn't I'd only ever of been able to read about in the reviews and then, you know, HNV and Inverness might not have had or what have you. So yeah, it was like it was pretty vital for me, um, you know, in the pre broadband era. Mm-hmm. Because the only other way to find these tunes were to go on LimeWire or Napster and spend an hour and a half downloading one track. And then it turns out it's not even a track, it's a fucking demo of Wolfenstein or something. <laughs> that's, what I, that's what I did. That's, that's, the, that's exactly what I did. Aye. Like, I do, I do remember moving on to the, you know, the file sharing stuff. And with that, it, the, it was very much a, okay, what do I know? So I'll go on and download it. But with... Cover mount CDs, you know, you had 15, 20 tracks and you might only know three or four of the bands and then the rest was an education. So, bef- so Craig, before I ask your experience with them, I want to pick up on one interesting theme there and you're talking about being exposed to other things and that's definitely not a feature of modern music as much. Things are so easily skippable and so much about algorithms tailors your listening experience uh, to your existing tastes already. You know, with some variation, but not always a huge amount. And one of the things about cover mounts was that you were more more or less forced to, to grapple with a whole host of stuff. You you knew you weren't going to like it all. You knew, in fact, there was probably stuff in it you were going to absolutely detest. But you you were forced to, to to wrestle with this music that you weren't it, that you weren't otherwise necessarily going to spend any time with. And it did produce the odd surprising result and I think that kind of mirrors that old attitude to albums anyway where you could only get one album a week or one album a month depending on your background and your circumstances and as a result you know Trent Reznor's spoken about this we've mentioned it on the show before you had to really grapple with the album tracks as well you wanted to get your, your the most for you know the bang for your buck and, and you really dug into things and spent more time and it gave the artists a bit more scope well these magazines were putting things together that wouldn't fit together on any logical sort of mix cassette you would give your friends and stuff but it did force you to hear new things and sometimes some of them just you know, they just stayed with you, and it, that that actually was really good for broadening your horizons in a way. Yeah, I'm just I'm just getting to draw a line in my head, and it's, I think what I was doing is looking at like the good reviews and crying a metal hammer, downloading a track from those albums, and then then I put them on a, a mixed CD, and I'd listen to that on the way to school endlessly to the fact my mum hated me because I was playing the same fucking like ten tunes on repeat. I mark that's why um, your mum hated you. <laughs> 
Oh, you know. <laughs> <laughs> you keep telling yourself that, son. Um, uh, yeah, absolutely. I know what you mean. And I did enjoy file sharing when it came around. But file sharing, they weren't foisted upon you. And then you weren't locked in a sort of metaphorical room with them for a month until the next one came along. You know, you could just ditch it. You could get 10 seconds into it and ditch it. Whereas with this, if you put the disc on, you weren't necessarily going to stand up and skip every tune. You would just let it play. And after three or four listens, the... Head PE song <laughs> might start to make sense to you if you're Craig, or uh, you know, so- something decent <laughs> <laughs> might start to make sense to you. There are tracks on the, the the compilation we'll cover in the second part of this show. There are tracks on that that I really didn't like at first listen, and then after half a dozen, I was really into them, and then ended up getting really into the bands. Um, Craig, what about you? How did they feature for you? I imagine it was similar to me. Yeah, I'm only about 25 years younger than you, but. Um for me, like, you know, coming from a small town, Scotland or whatever, it's, uh, it was an economical thing. Uh, I, I didn't have a CD player till quite late as well. Little aside, I remember I got one of those little kind of bubble, like stereo things with a mm. CD player on the top and a single deck in the front. And, uh, the only two CD- CDs that I had were, um, the best of Fats Domino, which is fucking <laughs> awesome, and Raga Jam, which had the first track was Old Carolina by Shaggy, and then like Iron Lion Zion and Sweat a la 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 long. So I didn't shape who you are. And uh, yeah, government CDs were were just just a way for me to hear lots more music. And I think people of our generation, Chris, we were kind of trained in this with things like uh, now that's what I call music, things like that. These these compilations where they might have had some absolute world class bangers on them, but there was a lot of shite on there as well that that you'd never hear, hear of again. One hit wonders and, and and even less than that. For every Hadaway, there <laughs> there was. Uh... <laughs> And I'm still questioning what 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 is love? What is love? <laughs> Never know. Um, but yeah, um, these these government CDs were super vital. Um, I, I didn't get into. I still still haven't really got into the whole file sharing thing. I, I think. I kind of just missed that because I didn't really have internet. Internet was just kind of coming up. Like I, I'm of this generation where it's a weird generation where we grew up without phones and then with phones. I think I had my first mobile phone at maybe 18 or something like that. So you had to like meet your pals near a phone box mm-hmm. just to find out if, if they were coming or not, things like that, you know. Aye. And it's a very strange, I don't know what the, the, the letter is with the gen of it, you know, but it's a very interesting thing where, you know, we, we lived without mobile phones and then we suddenly had them yeah yeah so um and government cds are a wee bit like that where i didn't have enough money to go and buy every album that i read about but when you hear when you hear these government cds and it's very obvious when i was looking at the collections we've been sharing them in the uh the unsung triple a facebook thing and so many of them just jumped out and you can almost tell the tracks that are um that are so vital and so good that made me lifelong fans of some bands and then there's utter dirge yeah and it's actually quite interesting now looking back at it looking at what happened to those bands and and why oh definitely isn't it quite interesting as well the dynamic where your friends would be discussing the cover mount from that month like it was a community thing you know if you were Mm. in the metal community oh did you get the new kerrang 
did you listen to track seven on that compilation? What do you think of the yeah. X band? And you would sit at the pub talking about it. Oh, did you get that one? Did you get that one? And that that was a kind of communal experience where so many of these went out and certain magazines in, in particular were so popular that it would become something that everybody had in common, you know, which is not really something that can be said even of Spotify playlists. And that became an event as well because... Mm-hmm. Um, if you had, say, a, a group of pals who were into heavy music or rock music kind of thing, I might say, Chris, are you going to buy that album or I'll, I'll buy this one? Yeah. And then we'll, then we'll swap or you can tape it or burn it or whatever. I don't know that about you as well. Thing as well. I don't know about you guys, but at least a few of these cover mount CDs, I, I didn't buy the magazine, <laughs> shall we say. Oh, oh, oh. How else were you going to get your poster of uh, Nadia from Cold Chamber, though? That's true. If you didn't buy the magazine. That's true. Right, so, see, before we get too far uh, down the hole of our own personal experiences of it, we'll come back to some of our thoughts. I just want to do a wee history lesson tonight, because I mentioned a word really early on that definitely needs to be addressed for a lot of listeners. Flexi-discs. And cover mounts kind of started with flexi-discs, okay? So before the advent of compact discs, flexi-discs were used as a means to include sound with printed materials, magazines, including all, uh, music instruction books. So it was actually quite a good way to let a student hear how something should be played along with showing them the sheet music. It was a really, really good kind of multi-format educational tool. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, flexi-discs could be really cheaply bound inside a publication using a little perforated seam. They, were, they weren't quite paper thin, but they were very, very thin and you could just tear it off down the perforated seam. Um, in fact, one problem with the flexi-discs was that they, they were so light uh, and the stylus in a record player uh, was so heavy comparatively, that the discs would sometimes stop spinning and just drag round with the stylus. So they used to have, well, a lot of them had on them a little specific demarcated place, usually drawn on them or something, for you to put something like a coin or a weighted object to make the the needle actually run round them. Because they were groove cut, like, like vinyls, but they were very, very, very thin, as we say, wobbly. For example, some of the early uses of flexi-discs in the UK, Private Eye magazine, which is a political satire magazine over here, released audio uh, on flexi-discs throughout the 60s. Aren't we in danger of forgetting the real meaning of Christmas? Namely, the miraculous birth of a magister in a lonely stable in Balmoral. If this is their decision, the three wise men need their heads examined. Um, although the term government wasn't really used at the time, I think the term flimsies was one that people used to use back then, and that obviously has to do with how sugarly and thin these things were. Uh, some of the discs in question in Private Eye featured satirical sketches by people like Dudley Moore, Peter Cook, Barry Humphreys, stuff like that. And now Malcolm Muggeridge asks the question, how much? How much? We'll be back with you in a moment. Yes, new instant Robert Maxwell dissolves overnight. Robert Maxwell... Uh, more like a radio show, uh, less less music. Come the 70s, NME, a New Musical Express, big magazine, big influential music magazine in the UK, did start issuing these 7-inch flexi-discs. Although flexi-discs were usually just used as occasional giveaways, from 1980 to 1982, uh, Flexi Pop magazine was specifically named after the format and, and made it a speciality of giving away discs with each edition that contained the artists who were going to talk about or interview. Um, I saw one guy as well, we're talking about how flimsy these things are, one guy on a discussion board lamenting yesterday, I remember a kid at school having the issue of Flexi Pop with the Adam and the Ants Flexi, and he removed the tape, fixing it to the cover, and it blew away across the playground. 
around and some girl stood in it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Which just is like a mad thing to think of that you had something that had music embedded on it and a gust of wind could just take it away. But it was really innovative at the time. They, they were all over the place as well. Japan had them starting in the early 60s, as early as us at least. A publishing house called Asahi Sonorama published this monthly Asahi Sonorama magazine uh, with what they called Sono Sheets, which were, yeah, just, you know, collections of music to go along with it. And in the Soviet Union, of all places, flexi-discs were really important, but in a strange way. They were mass-produced from 64 through to 1991, the fall of the Soviet Union, uh, inserted into these magazines for teens called Krugazor. Uh, sort of state sanctioned kind of teen entertainment I'm sure it was all very austere uh, in 1969 the government the Soviet Union also launched an audio magazine for really young children Kolobok <laughs> uh, which contained flexi discs of you know children's tunes nursery rhymes things like that and I'm sure more than the odd song about the brilliance of the socialist government uh, communist government Знаем, слышим. Я просил тебя передать письмо и передать рано утром. Um, they were always really vivid blue and, and apparently to this day are really familiar to anyone that grew up in the Soviet Union or even shortly afterwards when they were still circulating. Um, because of a shortage of vinyl in the Soviet Union though at the time, there's a really famous phenomenon of the Rontgenedzdat. Uh, or Is the that ribs, the X-ray stuff, or yeah. the bones, yeah. yeah where yeah. people, exactly, especially people that were trying to trade in music that was prohibited, which actually, to be fair, was also some quite mainstream music. Uh, they would take the X-rays out of dumpsters from behind hospitals, and then they would groove cut the X-rays. And so these are proper collectors' items. We've, we've spoken about them a wee bit in the show before in the Nexus, but yeah, you have these groove cut X-rays of records that uh, were uh, contraband in the USSR at the time, and this was how they circulated them, they only played so many times because of the way they were cut and because of the material, whilst it was durable enough to carry a song I believe it was like, you know, maybe 20 or so plays and it started to deteriorate quite a bit Uh, Some interesting flexi-disc trivia if you can believe I'm saying that Another fucking thing the fucking Beatles led the way with. Every year between 1963 and 1969, the Beatles made a special Christmas recording, which was made into a flexi-disc and sent to members of their fan club. Uh, The early discs contained thank you messages and things like that, but they started to experiment with the format a bit later. I think it was a 1970 disc, had a pastiche BBC radio show, uh, and actually included a specially recorded song uh, titled Christmas Time Is Here Again. And as you can imagine, those are mega collectible now. Uh, ABBA Live 77 was a special single-sided uh, promo gold flexi-disc. They were close in Alfinando Every hour and minute seems to last eternally I was so afraid for Given as, as a kind of bonus to children who sold magazines and books at Christmas for, no, bear with me, for Jultening Forladget. 
I don't fucking have a clue how that should be pronounced, uh, but they were basically a publishing company using door sales as their main distribution channel. Uh, the disc in question that was given to the kids as a thank you uh, contained excerpts of ABBA's recent concert appearances in, of all places, Australia, Craig. Um, what else do we have? Uh, a two-sided flexible sheet recording of the songs of Humpback Whales... One of the loveliest nights I have ever spent at sea was on April 13th, 1970. It wasn't calm, and our little boat bowed and dipped... Uh, which was produced by a guy called Roger Payne, <laughs> was included in the January 1979 issue of the National Geographic. With a production run of 10,500,000 copies, it became the largest single pressing of any record. Uh, what else? Uh, in 1992... Select magazine featured a Chris Morris flexi-disc. Uh, it was a satirical seven-minute thing from his early days just prior to uh, the world falling in love with the day-to-day. Uh, it kind of lampoons that smashy and nicey type radio show. Uh, it has a brilliant tune in it, like a piss-take tune of the Pixies. So well done, but I mean, it's genuinely better than a lot of the later Pixies material, and it's about <laughs> a mum spilling her tea on her son's corduroy trousers and then noticing that he's well hung. <laughs> it's classic Chris Morris, and uh, and and another classic Chris Morris move that is seven minute. Uh, Flexi Disc also has a phone prank involving Piers Morgan, where Chris Morris phones him up pretending to be U2's manager, then puts Bono on the phone in very commas to Piers Morgan <laughs> to promote an exclusive story about their uh, tour, their imminent split as a band, all following a new double A side single that he announces to Piers is One Less Bitch, <laughs> Find Them, Fuck Them, and Flee. <laughs> How's it going? I can't believe this. Well, Paul and I were in the office this morning. We thought, who are we going to tell? Q Magazine? We thought, no, fuck them. And we thought, the Sun print a no-nonsense approach. So why didn't we do that? They kind of appealed to our sense of humour as well because they're like the turd of the music world, you know. (laughs) 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 Fucking guy's amazing. Which, obviously, Piers Morgan buys totally wholesale. It's superb. Um... And I think in 1990, the last bit of trivia, the number one magazine gave away a free flexi disc of. Do you remember Betty Boo? Uh, she did the track called The Anti Smoking Rap. Um. So as of like as I said earlier on as well, as of two thousand and ten, there was a sort of kitsch value to these flexi discs and Decibel magazine began releasing flexi discs again with each issue. I think it started actually in January two thousand and eleven. And the content on each disc was quote hundred percent exclusive songs from the artists that had been featured. So again, extra collectible, a really novel sort of retro nod from Decibel. After Flexidiscs, cover mounts started to evolve and along came the computer magazines because there was the explosion of home computing in, in the early 80s. 
Uh, the government practice continued in that way. Uh, in the United Kingdom, computer hobbyist magazines began distributing tapes, cassette tapes, and then later floppy disks with the publications. This was a really big thing with the Amiga. Also with like the Spectrum and the C64. Uh, the initial purpose of cover mounts was to distribute demo versions of video games, so like a bit of an advert, like a trailer for a film, as well as shareware uh, applications, operating systems, wallpapers, and just other generally free content you did get the occasional full game i, mean, I remember those cassettes uh, and I remember- does dave or mark remember ever playing a computer game on a cassette yeah I had, I had a commodore i had a commodore 64 yeah i used to I used to get the cassettes from the library and then copy them onto an actual cassette tape and then just play them yeah my, <laughs> i never had a console but my cousin had a commodore so yeah i, I had an amiga as well road rash I had an Amiga as well, so those like I, I suppose that's actually more relevant to me. Like the, those cover mount floppy disks, I've got more familiarity with them. Than I do. That's mad. My first computer was an Amstrad CPC four six four. Oh, green text, green, screen monitor. Yeah, I remember yeah. them. And then I remember when I got an Amiga, it was like a big, big deal, <laughs> and it was sponsored by Colin Curley, who was the mascot for Quavers the Crisps. Oh, <laughs> it, it was like an Amiga 600 and the whole box came in. It was like this this game that came. It was kind of like Colin Curley's adventure. It was so fucking crap. <laughs> we, had, we had one kid in the neighbourhood who had a C64 and we all used to go to his and play. And the amount of, I mean, the patience of children back in the day, because you had to wait half an hour on a level yep, loading. Yep, yep. Unbelievable. <laughs> um, so one of the first cover mount games to be given away was in 1984, the Thompson Twins Adventure, which by the way, I think is perhaps why the Thompson Twins were then chosen uh, to appear in the Black Mirror the band special. the Thompson Twins, yeah? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And the Thompson Twins themselves feature in Bandersnatch, the Black Mirror special. And I think it's a nod to the fact that they were the first full cover mount game. Um, and by contrast, get this, in November 2015, Magpie magazine uh, brought the concept full circle and attached a free Raspberry Pi Zero to the cover. So nice. it's the first full computer yeah. to be included That's on cool. the cover of a magazine. That's pretty cool. Insane, eh? How much was the magazine, do you know? <laughs> Good question. The Raspberry Pis were only like 15 quid, so it couldn't be that much. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um Software, this was an interesting little detail by the way, I know we're not here to talk about uh, computers, but software added to cover mount on computer magazines wasn't always secure. In the days before the internet connections were common, one of the fastest methods to spread a computer virus could be to accidentally, we'll say accidentally, uh, include it on a cover disc. Uh, And although the discs were carefully scanned, there were cases of discs being distributed with viruses, uh, which obviously harmed the reputations of the publications quite a bit. In several instances, the publishers had to explain that while the media were all scanned by antivirus software, the viruses were often too new or sophisticated to be recognised by that software. For example, in 1998, cover discs released by PC Powerplay and PC Gamer were infected with a Marburg virus, which actually helped make that a really widespread threat, according to, you know, news channels, CNN and the like. Uh, and a Mac Addict cover disc in 2002 contained the auto-start worm. So, nothing to do with this podcast, but just interesting. There you go. Um, but aye, cover mount cassettes then crossed, you know, the divide from computers into music, uh, became a more, slightly more affordable format. Um, the enemy had had a long history with 
cassette releases uh, particularly famous were the C81 and the C86 releases which are big collector's items now um, but they were not actually cover mount releases they, you kept to obtain them you had to send away two tokens I think one from two copies of the magazine effectively to show you'd bought it plus a £1.50 postal payment which in 1981 wasn't negligible uh, but it was still good value because you got this curated collection uh, and I think some of the stuff in it was quite exclusive uh, other similar token cassettes included Pogo Agogo which was a, an enemy 10th anniversary a punk release uh, We've Come For Your Children which was a really famous psychedelia collection uh, and also a selection of really rare Billy Holiday demos that the enemy put out You're in love Your hearts are all day long You're only stuck across your portal Just been out of the words I love um, at that point, the cassette medium wasn't quite cheap enough for the magazine to give them away. Uh, later, free cover tapes did become a thing as the, the, the medium uh, dropped in, in, in price. By the way, Mark, that enemy coupon postal method was also the case for Capital Radio, the vinyl EP by The Clash. Um, once they they dropped to an affordable level, many other magazines started to feature cassettes too. Select magazine had a few celebrated cassettes. Uh, there were some prominent releases by Alexa Kerrang, who had a, a supersonic volumes one and two thing that were pretty famous with some notable contributors. I remember kids in my school playing it, and everybody kind of gathering around the tape machine to hear it. One particularly well-regarded cassette of, of that kind of like golden era of cover cassettes was the Chemical Brothers' Enemy Christmas Dust Up, the Dust Brothers Mega Mix, which was free with the December 17th, 1994 issue of NME. <laughs> It was mixed by the Chemical Brothers when they were still known as the Dust Brothers. We actually spoke about that, I think, two episodes ago. Had some big tunes on it. The Chemical Brothers Leave Home, The Prodigies Voodoo People, and Manic Street Preachers La Tristesse Durera. Um, did it have Umbop on it? <laughs> no, should have. The, the Dust Brothers did uh, all the scratching on Umbop, you know. <laughs> you know how triggered I am by that song, Craig. <laughs> you, you, you've seen many a person shout that at me across Fire Street and stuff. <laughs> <laughs> Well, it's um, got some cred. <laughs> now, I also, I, I noticed in uh, looking at some of the forums and people chatting about their favourite cover cassettes, I, I'd never read this magazine. I suspect some of our listeners might have, including Mr. Banella, uh, but Lime Lizard seems like it had terrific free tapes. Um, the 1993 Sub Pop one with Earth and the Fastbacks and the Dwarves. There's another 93 one with Tool and Henry Rollins uh, I saw an eclectic one with the likes of Censor 
Dodgy, Eugenius, which is Eugene Kelly from the Vaselines, and the Cardiacs on the same thing. Um, and a really good one, which I would have just lapped up at the time, uh, called Altered States of America, that had Jesus Lizard, Girls Against Boys, Polvo, Shudder to Think, Liz Fair, and Cop Shoot Cop. That magazine seemed like they really had it figured out, although I don't think the magazine actually lasted for very long. Um, And then, uh, although I think there was a little bit of overlap, but gradually cassettes gave way to CDs. Uh, The cover mount CD, which is where we're really going to get stuck into this. And this was the format, this this was the optimum format for it, really. It would only go through one more real iteration of evolution, which was to become a multimedia CD. And then it would pass away, because as we say, I don't remember there being any mini-discs. Um, although the cover mount CDs were tagged as free, it, cover mounts often increased the price of the magazine. Um, we'll talk about that in a wee bit. Um, magazines that carried the discs could sometimes cost as much as double. The free labelling, though, on them was there to sort of discourage retailers removing the discs and trying to sell them separately. Uh, to prevent the discs getting stolen, the retailers sometimes kept them behind the counter. I probably played a wee bit of a part in that, sorry, folks. Uh, and then, get the button ready, because Mark, over at you, Prince. <laughs> Prince and the big exclusive. Now, bands like The Faces had already uh, used cover mounts to do exclusive advanced listens to their albums. I think when it, in, back in the early 70s, they'd used an NME cover mount to tease tracks off their new album. But uh, Prince is very well known for offering studio albums free with various newspaper publications. His uh, 2007 album Planet Earth was the first to be given this treatment in the United Kingdom in partnership with the Mail on Sunday. Boo hiss. Yeah. Mail on Sunday's controversial uh, giveaway helped push the newspaper to record-busting sales. Uh, The newspaper's managing director at the time, Stephen Myron, uh, said that 2.81 million editions uh, of that issue were sold, which is eye-watering compared to what papers sell. That is the only time I ever bought that paper. Really? (laughs) Yeah, I bought it just for the the album, because obviously everyone likes a bit of Prince, and uh, (laughs) kind of disappointed. It went, it, yeah, it's not very CD good. Went in the bin not with very good. the paper. Mm-hmm. Well, interestingly enough, then you must have been one of the additional six hundred thousand copies that they estimate they sold because of that. The publication apparently pressed up three million uh, of of the album at a cost of about a million quid, or at the time, I think closer closer to two million dollars. Sounds like something Prince would do it before. <laughs> yeah, they did say that. Uh, they got a, a number of calls from different artists following that, both music and film, about launching products in, in, in a similar way. And for them, the Mail on Sunday in particular, felt it was a very exciting time for that. Prince's album 2010, yep. released in 2010 in Belgium under the same circumstances. Zero point to approaches and the fields around you drop. Was it just Belgium? No, it was, it was in the sun here as well. Was it? Mm-hmm. And yeah, other publications across Europe then. Uh, it's quite fun. That's quite, a, that's quite a noble record for him because not only is it garbage, <laughs> but um, he stopped releasing albums for four years after that, which he'd never done before. Yikes. 
They released three albums and then, then that's when he passed away two years later. Talking about people that should have stopped releasing albums, uh, pop rock band McFly released a cover mount album, their fourth record, Radioactive. Uh, other artists known to release them are UB40, Peter Gabriel, Calvin Harris and Soul Wax. Uh, in April 2007, EMI licensed the Mail on Sunday to cover mount, and this is famous, <coughs> 2.25 million copies of Mike Oldfield's Tubular Bells shortly before the rights to the album were due to revert to Mike. Something you can imagine he was very displeased Waydos. Yeah. What a fucking kick in the nuts. They totally like, man. You are not selling this, Mike. We're going to strike a deal with the mail on Sunday, get a wee bit of extra scratch, and to hell with you. So yeah, quite a quite a long and storied history. Um I did notice by the way, a little deviation. The PRS has an entire Subsection and department devoted to licensing for cover mounts, and I will mm-hmm. say I, I won't bore you with the rates, but they did look quite expensive. The terms of it did look fairly prohibitive. It's, maybe it's changed now because it's less of a thing, but I, I can't imagine how it would be economical. Did you see the thing about how um, if it's over fifteen tracks, the rate goes up by like like three three times as much? Yeah. So there must have been some change in the coffers back then to uh, to actually get away with this. I don't think the rates were the same. Back then, and I think this is this is what we're talking about, right? Because the, the the methodology behind these is a little bit opaque. Now, just genuinely, like earlier on today, we found out about uh, another podcast. Uh, yeah, the guys from We Dig Music. So I think they might even follow us or listen. Hello. Like, weirdly enough, I was looking f- to see if there was a playlist of the album that we're going to do next on Spotify. Yep. Searched on Spotify, and it turns out that they do a podcast on cover mount CDs. Mm-hmm. And the first one that they did was exactly the same as the first one we're going to do. Which I think must be because it's a particularly <coughs> interesting example of them because of the diversity uh, mm-hmm. in it. It's a really interesting collection of songs with like a lot of highs and a, a few total lows. Yeah, I, did, I also I just think out that podcast. Yeah, yeah. I also just think that um, it's nostalgic for men of a certain generation. Well, it definitely <laughs> is. And I noticed that that podcast as well. They have so far been unable to really determine quite how the pricing in this works. This is kind of some well, we can only speculate on it at this point, but I would love to know how it worked. So, for example, like, were the discs maybe subsidised by the sort of lesser known bands that were on them? Did they maybe pay to get on them? That would seem like a model that would make sense both for their labels that were trying to break them, because it's a really desirable thing to do. And I do seem and to remember when I was in, in, in my post-hardcore band back in Stirling, Craig, I think we did get a pitch about paying to get on something at some point, but it was... I mean, it was really dear. Well, I can imagine, like, you pay... I mean, I guess now you pay for, you know, radio pluggers and stuff yeah, like uh, that. I was going to say. Uh, and bands would always have a bit of budget to plug. And then also, particularly, like, metal and stuff, you pay to get on tours. Absolutely, yeah. So it's not... I can't I can't see why it wouldn't necessarily be a thing. So let's let's just t- pull a number in my arse, right? But let's say it was 10,000 quid to get on a Kerrang CD. You would that would that would probably represent pretty good value, wouldn't it? I mean, at that time, I would think so. Yeah, it, it yeah, because you're probably time. getting like fifty to hundred thousand folk buying that magazine every week. So yeah. you know, that's just getting that your band in front of those many ears pre-internet. How else are you gonna do that? Yeah, you're not if you're if you're a small new metal band from Stevenage, 
then that's literally the only way to do it. Yeah, and then consider, uh, scale that up. So you've then got, say you've got 15 tracks now, as we spoke about. Now, I'm going to set five aside for a particular reason, but you've got 10 other bands potentially paying 10 grand, right? So you're up to 100 grand. How much is that CD run really going to cost in mm. that kind of quantity with the very simple cardboard sleeves or the, the you know, the, the, the very basic jewel design that they ended up doing a bit more often? You could probably cover, certainly the pressing, from selling the space to those acts. And then I would imagine, it, by extension, what you'd then want to do to try and make that space as desirable as possible is to invite four or five other artists on now we've got a, we've got a strange one because the, the disc that we've done actually has a track devoted to an introduction but that's an introduction that still has some sort of clout which we'll talk about in part two but the other four tracks or three tracks or whatever tended to be reasonably large names yeah there's not a lot of huge bands on these series so it's like there's a handful of best. a handful but those handful th- that handful seemed pretty important i do remember like they used to do a best of at the end of each year and that would be much more solidly filled with bands you'd heard of mm-hmm. but they'd maybe do like four or five a year and usually it would be yeah five or six i think these major label bands then a couple of major label bands that you'd not heard of but major labels were obviously pushing them and then a few bands that were just like mm. stragglers yeah it seemed very, very label driven. Yeah, I would, I would say like, that these indiv- individual ones, like uh, the one we're going to talk about, V two is um, the kind of subsidiary of Virgin. Seems yeah. to be the the main one. Yeah, obviously the the better ones for people of our uh, taste and age is uh, very roadrunner driven things like that. You know, mm-hmm. um, and I guess these labels would have been taking out maybe a blanket buy and saying, okay, we've got uh, we've got your A league bands here, but we're gonna we, we're gonna need to try and break some of these kind of C C league bands as well mm. and that that seems to be how it, how it worked so i imagine they must have had a blanket fee and i wonder how much of that went to the artists you know yeah one thing if I was something's like getting pressed like a million copies of a cd that's that's like a dream for yeah someone like annie christian or idleweld or something like that you know yeah. but yeah they're probably seeing nothing from that i was kind of wondering if maybe it was sold to bands as a package deal. Maybe mm. they're also getting a, a video on Kerrang TV. Maybe they're also getting covered in a magazine in some capacity, whether it's just like yeah. a, a tiny column or a, a review of a live show. <laughs> you know what I mean? It was probably part of a wider thing. It's f- funny you mentioned that, Mark, because you no, know, we were talking about curation earlier on, and obviously there was radio stations and... I think there was maybe one rock show or something that was on it after midnight on one station, like in the whole of the UK. And it was, wasn't until like MTV2 came in, because MTV at the time had things like Headbangers Ball, which were also on at like midnight and a Monday night mm. and things like that. Yeah. But around this time, just as kind of I was getting internet as well, on people who had, I think my girlfriend at the time had, had Sky and she had MTV2. And that was another curation kind of thing you would get. You would get all these songs, all the big hits that were on these government series. You would see the video for them as well, and just perpetuated that mm-hmm. that kind of taste. Yeah. What? When did MTV do MTV Two come out? That would have been ninety seven, maybe ninety eight. Yeah, it? something like ninety seven, ninety eight. And it was actually really quite cool back then. Well, to me, it was. Oh yeah, it, it, it was, yeah, it was I liked it. All rock music. Yeah, it had a had a house in either. Like, I'm gonna I'm gonna take a a gamble, and I think it's a pretty safe one that there was an incremental 
tightening of the operations of how these cover discs and cover tapes and then cover CDs worked, right? So I would say it was probably quite naively done early on. It was probably a sort of, can we afford to do this? Let's do it. Let's invite these acts. It's part of our brand. You know, we've got a good relationship with The Clash or we've got a good relationship with Gorky's Psychotic Monkey or something. Let's, let's, let's ask them to do this. But then... Once, you know, with as with most things, as with like print media or any sort of branding, once people start to refine the format, they see opportunities to make money. So, I mean, mm. you know, early on in gigs, you wouldn't imagine that bands were sent out with wads of tickets to sell to their grandparents to try and make money. That's something that evolved into music as, you know, the power balance shifted from the band to the people owning the venues or the big brokers of, of gigs and stuff that had big access to bigger acts and you wanted on the bills so I would say this all evolved and then as the magazines got more power they were in a position to maybe sort of leverage a bit more and say oh well you know what yeah we used to invite people onto these discs but now we sell it because it's premium you know now we can afford to charge there was probably some you know brainstorming session where some ambitious intern said why don't you just charge the bands to be on it now and somebody's got a good idea and then that's become the norm and then beyond that they've been like you know it's tighter and tighter and tighter and they've got more and more efficient and i think it's probably like that i doubt very much that it landed ready formed as as a as a oh yeah and I, I like i just imagine that like some of it will just be favors and some of it like when you're booking a big festival now it's all about relationships and relationships with agents and stuff like that and personal relationships between the booker and and all that and i can imagine here the editor and they'll have had a commercial editor you know maybe i think this Um, this is probably the the start of the end for the music industry you know yeah exactly and it'll be like pay to play thing but the term free music you know you get music for free by buying a magazine so even if it is going to cost a lot of money it might be that Okay, Corn are going to launch their new single on the new Kerrang, so they are going to pay for fifty percent of the fee. You know, things like that might be a thing because back in the day they wanted as much sort of media coverage as possible, and getting that MTV Two premiere and getting a Kerrang CD with the you know with the cover as well. And they say, all right, and we're going to be the big exclusive front of the CD as well. New album Corn, everybody's very excited. We'll, we'll, yeah, exactly. We'll, and then Sony will pay fifty percent of Kerrang's costs for that. I can imagine that being a sort of thing as well that might happen, possibly. But I actually also think that in that situation, the magazine would maybe still be beholden to a band that big. So you always had the sort of kickoff thing, like Fear Factory or Megadeth or something like that. And I suspect that the magazine sort of said, "Do you want to be on this?" And they sort of said, "Right, okay." And that was, if anything, probably just a gentleman's agreement, sort of handshake thing. And then being on a cover CD with Fear Factory yeah. was then pitched to the smaller acts and that was then part of where their price tag came from. Aye, I, absolutely. You know I mean? But they might be able to reduce that price tag if a major label is happy to pay for yeah. more of it. And the band, the, the CD that we're going to talk about in the next episode, I think pretty much launched a band. Mm-hmm. You know, and I can imagine there was a big push by the market and, and the PR and the record label to say, yeah, this is, we're on the front of this. Yeah, so. yeah, which is the, the, the golden arrow that, <clears throat> that everybody wanted from yeah. being on them. Yeah, and I, I agree with you about the relationships thing as well. You possibly had a big act on it, but then the, the agent or the manager or whatever saying, right, I'll give you them, however... You're also taking two of my shite ones. These ones. <laughs> it's just like a festival, isn't it? So, yeah. um, mm-hmm. But the, I, I should we should say here, yeah, right, okay, so we are looking at this primarily from a rock and indie perspective because... But us... Um, 
arguably come and, and the UK perspective as well. And the It'd UK be interesting to see yeah. how this travelled globally. Well, as I said, that you know earlier on, they were big in Japan and they did make an appearance in the Soviet Union. They were a thing in the United States. Just I think the likes of Kerrang and stuff seem to have been particularly prominent in in the history of them. Because even looking on forums, a lot of the input is from from British listeners. Um, now, I would say that governments were probably even more of a feature, a typical feature in the classical world. Classical magazines always have them. There's loads and loads of them. There's probably ten, a ratio of 10 to 1 for every metal one that you, you can find. Likewise, jazz as well. Jazz magazines have a lot of them. Jazz. Is that because of royalties? Is that because of royalties? So, um, so if you're playing a, a classical piece, say you're playing like a back uh, piece or something like that, and uh, you don't have to pay the royalties because it's expired. yeah, just performance royalties rather than. And even then, I don't yeah, think you'd yeah. even pay anything. Yeah, I, um, I mean, again, that's a whole new world of financial dynamics that we can't possibly get mm. our heads around. I'm sure it's fascinating, but uh, that then moved on <laughs> from those to the dance music scene. So, Mix Mag and Ministry of Sound had some huge huge mix CDs, like CDs mm-hmm. that you would walk in somewhere and somebody would just put the mix CD on and it would be numerous bars and stuff would just have that mix CD playing in a loop constantly. Aye, totally. You would know what one it was and they became quite synonymous. You also had some of the dance mags and some of the, the more techie mags that are giving away discs that had samples on them for, for people that were mixing at home. You know, you could mm-hmm. rip these samples off them or sometimes data discs or Remember we did it on the Pitch Shifter episode for www.pitchshifter.com they had the track at the end of it that was just choppable sound samples for triggers and things like that. So it's hard to gauge whether featuring on <laughs> a jazz mag cover <laughs> disc had the same <laughs> career making potential as for example featuring on a Kerrang disc since they were more common. It very possibly did. It very possibly was the highlight of a lot of people's careers. But there's no denying that certainly in the world of rock and indie, it, it broke certain acts. Um, from a personal perspective, I would say, in, in my consciousness, uh, Hot Snakes. Idlewild. <laughs> the band Cold, which we'll come back to. Alison Chains, probably. Probably Mogwai, despite being Scottish, it was an NME compilation that featured the Mogwai track that first first really captured my attention. Uh, Elliot Smith, I first really got into Miss Misery on an uncut cover mount CD, which was tunes from soundtracks, and that had been the closing credits of Goodwill Hunting. Goodwill Hunting. Uh, a trip out of town. To a place I seen in a magazine that you left lying around. And also Corn, Kerb Dog, Moby, uh, Lodestar all came from that same series uh, of Kerrang cassettes that I mentioned earlier on. I mean, what about you guys? Are there just a handful of bands that you can really remember? Uh, one band that always popped up was uh, Did They Come After Kerb Dog? Uh, was it Wilt? Yes, Do you remember them? That was the band mm. they became. Yeah, um, Mondo Generator. Uh, remember yeah. uh, that? I heard so many things that I would then go on to love for the first time, like Sepultura, I think I heard for the first time. Masters of Reality, the Workhouse Movement, you remember oh, that? Oh, yeah. Said, damn, baby, to the next to me. You want to live a good life, 
they, super they suckers yeah. snake river conspiracy amen at the driving like queens of stone age super suckers seem like a perennial cover my <clears throat> band dude yeah uh, totally group <laughs> dog drill do you remember <laughs> them oh yeah oh, by uh, the way drilled yes it's got d i got one of their records recently it's actually all right It's actually pretty. I, I was thinking about maybe taking it on to this yeah. uh, show. What's funny is, like, you'd sort through the shit, or you would put it on, and you, like you said, you'd get used to some of the tracks, and you'd be like, oh, maybe I'm actually into, uh, I don't know, KMFDM, and I wouldn't normally. <laughs> um, but sort of Mix Mag and stuff like that had been doing curated mixes. But I remember Kerrang then started doing the Refuse music or the they would get people to fully curate. And I remember they did a garage rock one, which I think was that done by the kills or it had the kills on it anyway. But then Casey Chaos from Amen did one. And that was one that fucking opened so many. That's iconic, that one. It yeah, really is. Because you weren't just dealing with record labels trying to punt post grunge. It was like, oh yeah, he put on the birthday party and Satyricon and Caven, I believe. Caven and Roland's band and Immortal and stuff like that. And I was like, yeah. oh, okay, yeah, I'm actually into quite a lot of this. I think you were saying the kills. Did the hives not do one? Because remember when Kerang, oh, that would be the, yeah, the hives yeah, did one did. and the kills were on Kerang it. Kerang yeah. loved the hives. They were that crossover act. Um, yeah, the curated discs. They they kind of showed status for a magazine. It was a kind of humble brag if you could get somebody to do that. You know, I know that like Strokes and stuff did them for certain magazines. Uh, it helped the branding. It helped with the market placement of a magazine. So Kerrang really wanted to open itself up to stuff like the Hives because it was, you know, Kerrang came up as like a new wave of British heavy metal magazine to a lot of people. You know, it was like Iron Maiden and, and then also kind of stuff like Motorhead and that. And it tried to evolve and getting a certain curator onto a disc, mm-hmm. especially stuff like the Hives. And then later, I think they even went a bit lighter than that. Those kind of people helped broaden their their audience and it was kudos as well it was it was a, a, a you know a little high five for the staff to get somebody like that i think there was there was a bit of a hard on for sweden as well that's, oh, that's god what we're oh, yeah. part two yeah, as well yeah, yeah. Yeah. there was yeah. sweden, sweden swedish sweden. rock and roll and then swedish thrash metal and there was a crossover as well like entombed were like this crossover band From one end you went helicopters and the hives, and then the other end you went, you know, at the gates. Fucking love the entombed man. But it's yeah. like I put together, a, <laughs> I put together a wee list across the magazines. So when we're talking about the magazines, and probably like in our generation, it was Kerrang, Rock Sound, Terrorizer. Um, maybe Mojo for you, Chris. Metal Hammer, um, Melody up. Maker. Metal Hammer was was the big one. Yeah, Melody Maker, NME and stuff. I didn't really didn't really fuck with them too much. Uh, my my standard. Cause I guess we've been doing a lot of talking, so sticking some some tunes here as well, which are very much of the era. One that really changed my life, maybe, was Slipknot, Eyeless. Uh, 
that came on us on yep. a cover note CD. Oh yeah, Might actually a demo version of it. I think Slipknot were on the first CD I had as well. It was uh, yeah, spit it out. Um, and the same same breath. I think Dig by Mudvayne was on there. <laughs> um, Pretty Lush by Glassjaw. Um, American Head Charge, just so you know, that was a standout. <laughs> Lost More Than Wargasm, uh, you know, um, Raging Speedhorn, I think they were they were big in Vacant Stare. Um, bands like uh, other kind of more low-key, a band called Cecil, Cecil, however you want to call it. Yep. They, they were big for me I remember um, the only time I ever bought an uncut was on a flight to Canada and I heard uh, I think I heard Bright Eyes for the first time I think he's cancelled now and uh, oh, he's fine. Kelly he's fine. Joe Phelps um, who's this amazing kind of country singer guitar player this song called Not So Far To Go Sleeping John he snows Dreaming oceans and holes And all the while Gluing tile on basement doors Oh, the wild blue really Craig, Mark's, Mark's uh, got newsflash it's Bright, bright Eyes is not cancelled no. Bright Eyes is not cancelled Mark can <laughs> authoritatively <laughs> As an emo, as an elder emo I can I can say he survived what's he, what's he up to nowadays? Has he got a beard? And He's got a new album coming out But he did stuff with uh, Phoebe, Phoebe Bridgers And just the, just the regular music stuff Not the Ryan Adams stuff <laughs> uh, I don't know. I, I guess I still fuck with Ryan Adams. He's, <laughs> He's definitely cancelled. Right <laughs> but I think yeah, uh, Soulfly Bleed, Thirty Six Crazy Fists. There was a demo of Circle the Drain. Did we not do them for a Sound as a Pound? Yes, we did. So uh, Bitterness the Star. Yeah, I got Dave that. For, yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah, we didn't I mind it though. It. it was like just new metal to the fucking core. Yeah. I minded it. Oh uh, yeah, I, I, I liked the band. He had a, a weird voice. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think you guys might be talking about an early demo of mine some, some soon. <laughs> quite similar in vocal styling. Spoiler alert. Uh, number one sun, vacant stare. These are all kind of UK kind of touring circuit bands. Yep. I think every one of these CDs had the skip tunes with bands like Kill to This and mm-hmm. stuff Kill like to This. You know? Fuck me, man. Yeah. Holy shit. Forgot they even existed. Yeah. I don't know, but these were the days when you would actually read the classifieds and all the rest of it. I remember <laughs> the year after this, I went to the Big Day Out in Milton Keynes Bowl in 99. And that was, uh, I think it was Metallica and Marilyn Manson headlining. And I basically bought a ticket out the back of a magazine and got picked up at Fissel Park on a bus <laughs> <laughs> and went all the way to Milton Keynes by myself. <laughs> Came all the way back. That could just as easily have been the start of a horror film as a festival. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was just sitting there like, you know, writing in my journal and doing drawings <laughs> on the bus the whole way. <laughs> oh, that's terrible. But yeah, there's, there's, there's some real standout tracks there that, that I really got into uh, at a drive and one of them as well, Dave. But yeah, Glassjaw was probably my big takeaway. Glassjaw and Slipknot. Mm-hmm. Um, 
where we're talking about the the curated side of it as well. Um, how how do you think they compare to curated playlists, right? Because to me, playlists are impermanent, right? They, they, they evolve constantly. They're easy to change. They don't acquire that sort of totemistic status uh, and that sort of shared experience that I was talking about with friends who all get the same cover mount CD in the same week, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's also that issue of white noise. There's so many playlists. There's so many options that the significance of a playlist, even if it's really good, is kind of diluted exponentially, you know, that... That one Kerrang rock sound metal hammer compilation of the week or month had a lot of clout. Um, and even if a custom playlist is by somebody exceptional, it's one in millions. You know, it feels like that special shared experience thing just isn't there. I looked into the on the discogs, like who put these, especially the one we're going to talk about. I looked into trying to find out who it was that put it together. And aside from the celeb ones kind of thing, which were kind of just tokenistic um i couldn't find out anything about them so i think it was probably just staffers at the magazine who Mm -hmm. negotiated the deals and put this together but there was no cachet to it or whatever you want Mm -hmm. to call it yeah it's interesting you say that you sort of lose that shared cultural experience but i mean i guess Mm. we now live in a world with a lot more music than Mm -hmm. there was 20 years ago and a lot more listenable music that has been released and you know that well, we can talk about that if that means that music is worth less now because... You think much of the music for that year was listenable? <laughs> well, I mean, no, what I'm saying is there's more listenable music now because more people are better and it's easier to release. Yeah, not abso- absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Um, but then there are obviously a lot more playlists and stuff like that. And it's obviously not as tangible as, oh yeah, that monthly CD that we all talk about. But I do still think that the the quality shines through um because like there might be a specific you know playlist on spotify that's like hip-hop or trap or metal like a metalcore playlist or something like that and yeah it's always evolving and changing and stuff like that but when there's a standout track mm-hmm. you can tell people start listening to it and they talk about that and that's where that shared sort of cultural thing still exists within playlists you start noticing people are you know playing that at the club and you're like oh did you hear that on that playlist so it it's just a much more evolved and it's yeah it's not as nostalgic and it's not as you know cozy as sitting down to that cd but it, it is more evolved i think you're not necessarily maybe it's not a bad thing but you're not necessarily in 20 25 years going to have a podcast or a show about playlists the same way you can have a podcast or a show about you know no i know but but that that's because they are just not as specific but um, there's probably more music more better music getting put out there now than four good songs and eight dirge songs getting put out there once a month now there's like two thousand good songs getting put out to 10 million people i totally agree absolutely and and there's pros and cons and i'd say probably more pros than cons but it's a recurring theme on this show that a lot of the trends in music just now are resulting in a lack of permanence and what I mean is like the permanence of experience so here we've got another category where this is gone from the cultural milieu you know what I mean you no longer have the potential to talk about oh my god have you listened to this compilation I had that you had that I had that I'd Mm -hmm. never met you we had the same thing oh my god we had the same thing did you love this song that commonality that that like tiny insignificant little thing that ends up staying with you your whole life and you find you have it in common with someone and it sums up a whole moment of your life i don't know about you folks but when i was listening to that compilation i was getting all these flashbacks of like 
been places I've forgotten it been and mm-hmm. been at shows and oh I saw them and stuff that we're, we're, it's another aspect it's just one more aspect of music that we're finding uh, is impermanent now doesn't have long it doesn't have a, a lifespan and uh, that's one thing we've constantly come across is that a lot of the trends are leading to just throw away disposable temporary fleeting nature of things and I'm, I'm, not, I'm not trying to be I'm not trying to put a, a moral or a qualitative judgment on that, although I suppose there's one implied. But I just think that's an interesting thing. This is another corner of music that is not going to have any sort of enduring. Well, it might, but I think I, th- I, think, I think the music itself will endure. Yeah, but the playlists, the shared thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Also, it, there's another dynamic which I just want to throw in before I shut up. But is that borders are no longer an issue. One of the big things about these discs was that people were trying to break bands in territories. Mm. So the corn release over here, the X band suddenly you're like, who is this band? Oh, these guys are huge in America and now they're on this compilation over here. They're trying to get traction here. The playlists are sort of much more internationalised. It, it depends where they come from. Like Spotify UK's playlist is all UK acts, you know what I mean? So, And those ones are huge and listened to by hundreds of thousands of people. Yeah, I mean, I, I do agree with some of what you're saying, but also the other side of me is like, they're just too fucking old at this point. Like, no one's <laughs> going to be talking about, no one's going to be having that conversation look, after us. It's gone forever, you know? Yeah, we could we could also have a podcast about, you know, retro games or floppy disk drives <laughs> or something yeah. like that. And, like, they were fun, but there's no point in them anymore. We've, and we are older. <laughs> it's kind of sad to think that for some of these bands, being on one of these compilations was the highlight of their. Oh yeah, yeah totally. totally. That yeah, yeah. definitely go. I was, I was on a cover mount Metal Hammer with Fear Factory or something like that. That's my kind of. That's yeah. my yeah, uh-huh. cultural <laughs> um, contribution to the world. There's no, there's no question that's going to be a, a recurring observation as well because there is a, mm. a tragic quality to it. The only thing I would say is with that uh, analogy you said about the video games, what you will have in twenty years is people saying, "Oh my God, you played Skyrim. I played Skyrim as well. Oh my God, you." Played played World of Warcraft online, I played World of Warcraft, there is a shared experience there, the analogy doesn't hold, the music doesn't necessarily have that same shared experience, you know what I mean? I'm just oh my god, Chris, you and I were in World War 2? <laughs> <laughs> well, or 3. <laughs> there might be some of the shared experiences of like, do you remember seeing that, that Justin Bieber video? The first time that resonated with me, you know what I mean? Like that's, that could Yeah, do you remember when, uh, when WAP came out during lockdown, yeah, uh-huh. everybody was like, oh my god. Yeah. So much, so yeah, much. Yeah, but that's flesh. that's always been there anyway. We're talking about something in addition. Yeah, yeah. You know, do you remember when Rod Stewart brought out? Do you think I'm sexy? You know, I'm sure people. Yeah, but had do you remember uh, when that video of? <laughs> do you remember when that video of the man falling over on TikTok happened and everybody was listening to that? Song? That's true. <laughs> I mean, yeah, did you? So go, you know, the, these shared experiences are there. You're just not experiencing them because you're an old cunt. That, but no, but <laughs> you, you've made a point. But again, qualitatively, I'm just going to let it speak for itself. Is that the shared experience of things like? Collections of music and that has been replaced by Guy Falls over on TikTok. No, it was being glib. There, <laughs> well, was, no, there is creativity glib. on TikTok. You're being glib, but, but also these, these young people are having these shared experiences. Like you know, if you look at like a Billie Eilish concert or something like that, this is young people coming together. Young people would have came together at a Pantera Stadium concert back in the early '90s, kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Same thing, different different fucking recipe. People are still having these these experiences, and we're just not privy to them because, as Dave said, we're all. Kind 
Pirates. Chink, Billy Ellis, um, likes white wine as well. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's just a different medium now, especially with lockdown, things being online, all the rest of it. We see it as a bit glib, you know, like bands doing a concert from the living room or something like that, or uh, some highly produced kind of concert in a venue. It's, it's, two it's folk, just a different thing. Two folk meet in a bar in New Zealand in fucking three decades. Oh, did you watch that dreary cunt sitting on the edge of his bed playing an acoustic guitar cover of Creep as well? Mm. I remember those years. I remember the days. That was lockdown. That was when, my whole did lockdown. Did you listen to that, that unsung podcast? <laughs> yes. <Yeah, laughs> that'll, that'll be it. Aye. Those free Scottish guys. We are music's last hope. <laughs> did you want to talk anything about the notion of free music? Because this is kind of what... Uh, ah, you mentioned that earlier. That's it's interesting. It kind of came, came to my mind thinking about it. Like, was this the beginning of the end? Because although you were buying the magazine, it, it said free CD. And even though, as you said, sometimes the magazine price would double to, in those days, showing her age, it would be like three pounds for like a metal hammer. And you were getting like 18 to 20 tracks or 15 on the regular of, of free music. Was that something that psychologically kind of affected people being like, this music is free, even though you're getting maybe four tracks from some of the biggest bands of the era mm-hmm. and then maybe another 10 tracks of, you know, um, wishy-washy, take it or leave it dirge. But was that the start? Because I know, I know this is around the time when fail sharing and Napster and Lamar and all that were all coming out as well. But was this a kind of a, a collective change in consciousness where like music can be free or music is free or music's not worth? Or it's like a devaluation of the art form. Yeah, definitely. And, and, do government CDs really contribute to that? The the Mike Oldfield thing that Chris was talking about earlier on, I think uh, EMI put out that he had a, a 30% increase in sales mm-hmm. of his actual album, even with the free CD of 2.8 million or whatever was sent out. It's a strange... Kinda, it's a weird balance then. and I definitely think there's two sides to that coin. It's funny, I was reading I was reading uh, an article in by Campaign magazine or website and it was from 2005 and it was talking about free CD cover mounts are everywhere, showcasing almost every form of music imaginable. But are they pushing sales or, as many in the industry believe, killing the business? And then it's like a fairly serious report from a marketing perspective are free CDs harming or, you know, helping the music business? And it's interesting reading the guy who wrote this because I, I just don't think they're a music fan. So they're like, oh yeah, I bought the, the Covermount CD on Uncut and it was uh, pretty good. It was worth the 350 And you're like, all right. Then you would, you know, talk about like, oh, Daily Star is giving away a soul album that's fine i bought the i spent 50p on it uh, there's a christmas album on the daily mail uh, it's probably worth buying that rather than a, a christmas record like are you maybe stopping non-music fans from buying their one cd every six months but on the flip side to that as we've talked about Covermount CDs introduced you to so many records. Off the back of Covermount CDs, I've probably gone and spent, you know, thousands of pounds on albums, you know, over a decade. Um, so to me, Covermount CDs were invaluable to the music industry because they introduced me to music. Like, you know, once Prince starts putting it on the front of the Daily Mail, I think you're, you then can start talking about, are you devaluing music? The, the, the red top newspapers were doing it as well, you Aye. know, like your, your 40 pence Daily Star and shit. But then you've got to follow up with, you know, Radiohead and say, did they then devalue it, even though they were, that was an interesting concept, blah, blah, blah. I think the compilation Covermount album on a music magazine 
I think that valued music. Yeah. Yeah. I, sorry, I was just going to say. I think there's maybe an argument for there having been like a Goldilocks period. Um, I'm mindful though, be a big asterisk on that. That it also meant there were tastemakers and and gatekeepers, and the gatekeepers were the the magazines, which perhaps became too powerful because of it. But yet, as you say, it probably did promote sales, mm-hmm. uh, and that was a really like. Profitable period for the record industry in the early days of this. Yeah. Bear in mind that we've said it, it happened all the way through sixties, seventies, and eighties to to a more primitive uh, extent via cassettes and flexi discs. But when the CDs came in, it really like took off for a period. Then it seems like it got so saturated that it really did start to become somewhat counterproductive. Um, I also think it's interesting that the first iteration that I used of file sharing was uh, the likes of Epitonic. Now, it was kind of limited by the broadband speed, but Epitonic took what I would say is quite close to the cover mount format. They invited bands to submit one song, and uh, or one song per record, shall we say. And so you would be able to download, say, four or five Blonde Redhead songs. In my case, that's where I first heard them, right? And download the tracks and you'll be like, oh, I like that one. What album's that on? And then go and get the album. And sometimes you have to leave your computer on overnight to download that. I was using a mate's computer, in fact, to download that. That was a nice period because it was easy to access the stuff internationally. It sort of emulated the cover mount thing and that the bands were putting their best foot forward. They had a say in it. And yes, okay, they lost a bit of money on that song. But ultimately, it, it encouraged me to invest in a whole load of other music, including almost all of the Constellation Records stuff I got. I got via that. Or got into via that, so I do think that was a really nice period. But then, obviously, when when uh, broadband speeds increased and people were insatiable, they were like, "I don't want a song. I want the whole album, and I don't want to pay for it. I don't want to go out and pay for it." So, <laughs> it's probably a human nature rather than the format. I also just think the music industry tried to stop it rather than like grow with it and evolve with it. What what I find really interesting about this whole thing is like we've all obviously did a, a a minimal amount of research in this, but I couldn't find anything on the economics of how this how this all worked mm-hmm. for the bands. So it's probably a complete label thing. Yeah. It'd be interesting if uh, before we get to episode two, if uh, some maybe some of the guests that you've had on the program who have had songs on government CDs, maybe hit them up for for a quote really as to how that worked and how that worked for them as artists because because there's no information out there it seems like there might be a bit of a bit of a dirty secret there or something i don't really know how it works the podcast we mentioned earlier on the we dig music guys and free with this month's issue i think it's called yeah 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 yeah. so yeah as i say they are also trying to get behind the scenes and work out what exactly was going on and uh, you know, maybe between the two is we can we can actually get somewhere with that at some point. Mm-hmm. You can call up the guy from In Me, ask him. <laughs> oh, God, yeah. <laughs> I, I don't think we're on talking terms after that episode. Um, so I think that kind of brings us to the chin wagon about the actual concept of cover discs. So what we're going to do next week is take a specific cover mount CD, and in this case, quite an iconic one, uh, which we chose because I think it's got a lot to, to chat about within it. Uh, and that disc is... Dave. It is Radio Kerrang. Five? Volume five. Volume five. And it's from February 1998. Mm-hmm. And I was only 11 years old. <laughs> I was I was 16. Chris was 37. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I was six months old. No, I was uh, 12, I think. 13, maybe. 
Craig would get him yeah. for a day down the mines and stick that disc <laughs> on his stolen CD player. <laughs> Had to get up two hours before you go to work. <laughs> right, we will discuss that and review it uh, as we might any normal album and we'll see what happens. Uh, it should be a grand old time. 